2: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the authors and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. This series contains discussions of violence and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Previously, an algorithm. After graduating high school in 1991 in Lima, Ohio, Vaughn returned to Indiana, where he says he committed three murders in Hammond killing a couple as part of a robbery, and shooting a man after getting into a fight.
3: You said that you shot him near the telephone pole that was directly across right. from there. How many times do you think you shot a About three.
2: After a stint in the Marines, some head trauma, and a less-than-honorable discharge, Vaughn began dating a woman 29 years older than him. In 1995, they moved to Texas and got married. But life kept drawing Vaughn back to Gary and they moved back around the year 2000. Vaughn grew apart from his wife. He made a new girlfriend, Sharitha, but it was an abusive relationship. In 2004, he and Sharitha had a child together, but shortly after their child's birth, the child died.
3: I just snapped at that moment. So we had lost the child. We were going through that um, mourning period. She was out getting high and took the money to the dope man. And I was like, that's just too goddamn what... I'm like, fuck it. If you want to fuck up like this, we just gonna get this shit over with.
2: From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, this is Algorithm. I'm Ben Keebrick. After Vaughn and Sharitha's child died, Sharitha escaped Vaughn and went into hiding. Vaughn suspected Sharitha was staying with a friend of hers, a man named David Abram, who Vaughn said was a drug dealer and a member of a rival gang, the Vice Lords.
3: He was in a wheelchair That somebody got shot him.
2: According to a police report, near the beginning of April 2004, Vaughn showed up at Abram's house and asked if Shreetha was there. Abram told him she wasn't, but Vaughn got angry. I know she's in there, he said, and kept demanding to see her. But eventually, Vaughn gave up and left. The next day, Vaughn returned, this time with police officers. Vaughn told them that Abram had shot at his cousin Daryl. Abram talked to the police and explained the situation. When the police were satisfied with Abram's story, they left and Vaughn left as well. But Abram started hearing through the grapevine that Vaughn was hatching a plan to get back at him. Vaughn was telling people he had dynamite and he was gonna blow up Abram's house. A few days later, Abram was driving through his neighborhood when he saw Vaughn storming towards his house with a red can of gasoline. Abram called the police and pulled over beside Vaughn. Vaughn yelled at him that he'd blow up Abram's home if he didn't get Sharitha back and said that Sharitha owed him $7,000. Abram tried to reason with Vaughn. He remembered saying, "'You're gonna burn down my family, "'innocent people, over a woman?' Vaughn responded, give me $7,000 and you can have her. When the police showed up, they saw Vaughn was standing by Abrams' car, yelling wildly and waving around a red gas canister. Police say that they tried to get Vaughn to calm down, but things escalated instead. Vaughn poured gasoline on himself and got out a lighter, yelling to officers that he had dynamite and would blow himself up. The officers advised Abram to get away from Vaughn, so Abram drove back towards his home, but he could see Vaughn following in his rearview mirror. Abram says he saw Sharitha sitting on a porch a couple doors down from his home, and he threw her a set of his keys and told her to lock herself inside. But before Sharitha had a chance to react, Vaughn was already approaching. He yelled, "'Bitch, are you crazy?' and then started running towards her. She sprinted to the back door of Abram's house. Vaughn pursued her, gaining on her, but she managed to get inside and lock the door behind her. Vaughn began kicking at the door. Terrified, Sharitha tried to find a place to hide and ended up crawling under a bed. She could hear the door bust open and then heard Vaughn stepping inside. Vaughn yelled that if she didn't come out of hiding, he'd burn the whole place down. He began pouring gasoline onto the floor. Sharitha was terrified and didn't know what to do, but as Vaughn kept pouring gas, fumes began filling the apartment and soon became overpowering. Finally, Sharitha crawled out from under the bed. Immediately, Vaughn put her in a headlock and then he poured gasoline on top of her until the can was almost empty. The final bit of gasoline he poured onto his own head
3: Gas just running off of us. Then I bust the gas pipe and had the whole building filled with gas.
2: Police had now arrived at Abrams' home, but Vaughn told them to stay back or he'd light the building on fire. Police tried to talk him down and to clear others out of the area. Vaughn says he started clicking the lighter. I tried
3: to set the girl on fire me on fire and blow the building up all at the same time. It sparked, but it didn't light. He said he got lucky the fumes went hard.
2: Officer Kerry Rice was working that day. He remembers it a bit differently.
4: If he had tried to strike that cigarette lighter and it didn't strike the first time, he wouldn't have got a second chance to try to strike it. If he had a deadly weapon. The gas of the cigarette lighter was the deadly weapon, deadly force was authorized. You shouldn't and you don't want to, but sometimes you wish the scenario had it went different in 2004 maybe some people would still be alive today. I don't know but it's just eerie sometimes, because I don't think we still know how many women he's actually killed.
2: Rice says that he was nearby when Abram called 911.
4: We don't have too many days where we have stuff like this. Matter of fact, it was probably my first time ever going to a hostage situation like this one was.
2: It was a strange scene. With Sharitha in a headlock, Vaughn had marched her out of Abram's apartment and was starting back towards his own place.
4: He had his left hand around her neck, the gas can in his left hand, and cigarette lighter in his right hand. The girl was, of course, scared. She was screaming, please help me a lot.
2: The officers tried to calm Vaughn down. You trying to tell him you haven't hurt anybody,
4: it's going to be okay, you know, let's go ahead and end this now, ain't nobody hurt, you know, it's not that
2: serious. But he
4: really didn't want to be, for some reason, separated from that female. And he wouldn't let any of us get too close to him.
2: Like, if you guys started getting close, he threatened to light them on fire. Or, yep, he kept telling us to stay away. Every time he took a step
4: toward them, he threatened to, to light both of them up.
2: And how would you describe his general state of mind? Um, he was
4: calm, but but he was yelling. I guess he was yelling so we could hear him. I really did believe that he was going to set both of them on fire. You know, just from his demeanor and what he was saying.
2: So are you kind of, like, running through in your head, what do you do if he does do that?
4: only thing we can do at that point is try to at least grab the female and throw it to the ground and try to put the fire out.
2: As Vaughn marched Sharitha back to his apartment, a growing procession of police, firefighters, and now a SWAT team followed. They crossed US-20, a three-way highway that runs through Gary, and they went down an alleyway until they arrived at the back door of Vaughn's apartment.
4: His back was up against the door in the back of the apartment building. But at that point, we had two or three of our SWAT team guys go through the front door of the apartment building. And after he backed up to the door and opened it, two of the SWAT teams actually grabbed him. We ran up, also grabbed the can. One of us grabbed the girl and snatched her out. And that's how we were able to... To pry him away from her.
2: Vaughn was charged with felony breaking and entering and felony intimidation. He took a plea deal that knocked off the intimidation charge, and the judge used her discretion to bump the breaking and entry charge down to a misdemeanor. Vaughn was sentenced to a year in prison and a year of probation. Obviously, Vaughn was a deeply troubled person before this all happened. But in Vaughn's own mind, or at least the story that he told to police, this 2004 incident, losing his child and his relationship with Sharitha, and then going to prison, this was the incident that Vaughn saw as the beginning of his downward spiral.
3: It seemed like I never made it back from there. I was doing good to you. I quit crime, I quit, I quit everything. I was working, I had a house, I was doing good. Just couldn't make it back.
2: Or at least, if it wasn't the beginning of his downward spiral, it may have been when he returned to killing.
3: It we all went back out of control again. I never made it back. Once you... I don't know how to explain this to y'all, because y'all don't have the same urges. Once you start killing again, it becomes... It's like any other day. It's like if I was... I'm not an alcoholic, right. but if I were and I started to drink, you're off to the races. Right. That's basically how and I explain, because you have the urge to hunt.
2: In this part of the interview, Vaughn clearly implies that he struggled with murder rages sometime before his arrest in 2004, and then he struggled with them again after his release in 2005. In 2006, after Vaughn finished serving a year in jail and a year of probation, he borrowed some money from his stepsister Regina and moved back down to Texas. Vaughn got an apartment in the Rundberg area of North Austin, an area known for drugs and prostitution. That's that same area where Maria's son said that Vaughn would go for long walks at night. In Austin, Vaughn kept a low profile for about a year, before he committed his next crime. In 2006, after Vaughn had finished a year of prison and a year of probation for breaking and entering and threatening to kill Sharitha, Vaughn moved back to Austin. And in December 2007, he committed his next documented crime. This next section is going to get graphic. I'm not including it to be lurid, but because this is what Vaughn did. And maybe more importantly, this is what the justice system knew Vaughn was capable of. The following comes from police documents. On December 16, 2007, Vaughn booked a prostitute to come to his apartment. She says they met in the parking lot outside his building and then went back to his place. It was dark, and she asked Vaughn if they could turn on a light. He did, and then asked her if she was a police officer. She told him she wasn't, and then he attacked her. He tripped her and knocked her down to the ground, got on top of her, and began choking her. As she lost blood flow to her brain, she felt her body go limp and she urinated. She felt completely and utterly helpless. Vaughn yelled at her that he could kill her if he wanted. She thought that she was going to die. Vaughn then forced her to undress and to perform sex acts beating her if she didn't comply eventually he ejaculated inside her and a short while later he allowed her to leave the next day the woman went to the austin police to report the attack a sexual assault nurse observed that she had broken blood vessels in her left eye and pinpoint bruises behind her ears these are injuries that can occur if someone has been strangled so they supported her story of a violent attack. The nurse performed a rape kit and collected DNA evidence. The woman told police what had happened and where Vaughn lived. Police determined that Darren Vaughn was leasing the apartment at the address she had given them, but he wasn't at the apartment when they showed up. Eventually, they did locate him, and Vaughn told them that he was innocent. He claimed to have never met the victim, and said that he had moved out of the apartment a month prior to the incident. Police asked him if he'd consent to a DNA test, and he agreed. Almost half a year passed before police received the DNA analysis. It's unclear exactly what caused this delay. Like many places across the country, there was a rape kit backlog in Texas. It's worth noting, too, though, that there's currently a class-action lawsuit against the Austin Police Department For allegedly mishandling thousands of sexual assault cases going back to the same time period. Whatever the reason, though, almost half a year passed between when the DNA was collected and when police received the analysis. The analysis showed a sample from the victim's jacket matched Vaughn's DNA, but it still took another two months before police found and arrested Vaughn. Vaughn was charged with two counts of aggravated sexual assault a first-degree felony that can lead to a sentence of up to 99 years in prison. But the Travis County District Attorney's Office labeled Vaughn a low-risk offender and gave him a plea deal where if he pled guilty to a second-degree sexual assault charge, he'd only receive a five-year sentence. Years later, a spokesperson for the District Attorney's Office told a local paper that they were completely unaware of Vaughn's violent incident with Sharitha. Because Vaughn had only been convicted of a misdemeanor breaking and entering charge, it wasn't even on their radar. When I learned about the crimes Vaughn had been convicted of in Gary and Austin, for incidents where he'd almost killed two women, I was shocked by the short sentences he'd received. But I also just didn't have a good sense for what's normal. How do we, and how should we, make decisions about how we sentence someone for a crime? To try to find out how big of a threat someone like Vaughn poses, I contacted Professor Carl Hansen.
6: If you look at, like, police stories, the police stories are almost always told from the perspective of catching the wrongdoer. My story starts, okay, you caught him. Now what? You know, what's the rest of the story?
2: Hansen is a clinical psychologist who spent most of his career working for the Canadian government, trying to figure out how their justice system should deal with sex offenders. He's now a professor at Carleton University in Ottawa.
6: Most of my research has focused on sexual recidivism. So these are people with a history of sexual crime. And the question is, given that somebody has a history of sexual crime, what is the likelihood that they're going to do it again? And how can we tell that individuals are higher or lower risk?
2: Hansen says there's a number of factors that predict whether an offender is high-risk or low-risk, like young age, past crimes, negative attitudes towards authority, substance use, and a general preoccupation with sex. All of these risk factors can then be tallied up and put into an algorithm that then predicts a sex offender's risk of committing future offenses. Studies show that these algorithms do a better job at predicting recidivism than parole boards or decisions made by professionals based on their intuition.
6: The data is getting better. We can sort people into higher and lower risks. The lowest risk people have expected rates of sexual recidivism that are quite low. It's like less than 2% after five years. The highest risk groups, have rates, um, you know, 30 to 50 percent after five years, which I think most people would consider objectively high. Now that being said, people are not fully predictable. We're not, you know, billiard balls. Even somebody in the highest risk group, there's no group that will say this person is guaranteed to reoffend. It's a question of how much risk we're willing to tolerate.
2: I wondered whether Texas had all the information it needed when it deemed Vaughn low risk. Should the gasoline incident with Sharitha have been factored in? This guy, at one point, had kidnapped an, an ex girlfriend. So after she left the relationship, he showed up and was threatening her with a can of gasoline. And, you know, police showed up and it was this whole thing. But I'm curious how, you know, like the history of a crime like that. Might influence how you think of someone's risk.
6: Oh, a history of, of violence um, is a well established risk factor for sexual crime. If you knew this guy had a history of threatening his ex girlfriends, um, it's not good.
2: Yeah, and and it is kind of like domestic violence or violence against women. Is that particularly important or?
6: So. One of the well-established predictors of sexual violence against women is, I guess, negative attitudes towards women. You know, putting women in a class where they're not trusted. You know, think about incels. Individuals who think that women are, you know, out to get them, they're tricky, can't be trusted. If you have that belief, and if you also have problems with what psychologists would call attachment, so that you get particularly upset or irrational... Uh, around uh, breakup of relationships. Those are established risk factors for sexual violence.
2: When Hansen mentioned attachment problems, I thought of Vaughn's relationship with his mother, how he'd been put into foster care at age six and felt that his mother had abandoned him. You know, there probably are factors from someone's childhood or early experiences or really things that they have little control over is it fair to use those factors to make these decisions um, when in some ways they could help public safety but in other ways almost feel discriminatory against a person
6: yeah coming back to the moral question um, about you know how blameworthy people are we're all a product of something right you know there's we all have causes and conditions that made us who we are and if we're you know committing serious sexual violence, I can bet that the conditions weren't very good, right? So, what do we do about that? Um, I think that we have to make some determination of blameworthiness, but I think we also have to have a wide view about um, how we can make the the world a better place, and some of it has to do with um, making people's upbringings better, one of the researchers who I really like, uh, Richard Tremblay, he was very interested in, you know, going back in the prevention. And so he started with, you know, severe forensic hospitals, and he got a bit younger and got to teens and he got to young children. And last time I talked to him or saw him speak, um, he was looking at pregnant women. And he was able to identify prior to birth children who were going to be involved in the criminal justice system and had to do with the, you know, parents' um, lifestyle, their substance abuse, their, you know, values and behavior. We're all products of something.
0: This is it
2: I'm not sure what to do with all this information about the factors that might make someone high or low risk of reoffending. Before I ended my conversation with Hansen, he wanted to make it very clear that Vaughn isn't a typical offender. He's an exception to the rule. Sounds
6: like this fellow that you're focusing on has significant and serious problems in multiple areas, but that's not typical. When you're talking about sex crime and sex crimes against women, we tend to make policy based on the worst cases. If you have a wider range of what these cases actually look like, uh, I think we'll motivate towards better public policy overall.
2: And I want to be clear I don't think any of Vaughn's risk factors excuse his behavior in any way. But I do think as a society, we should work to reduce risk factors like neglect and abuse that can make someone more likely to commit these sorts of violent crimes. And I think we need to do a better job at making sure courts and parole boards have the information they need to make informed, evidence-based decisions about someone's risk of reoffense. But Vaughn didn't feel like he'd gotten off easy, as he told Detective Ford in 2014.
3: And from that offense where, where you choked the girl there right. Right, and wound up with all this happening, you were never given probation or parole no. conditions or anything like that no. as you came to Indiana. No. You were completely released. Right. So the only thing you had to do was sign up on the offender registry right. in Indiana. To
2: According to Vaughn's twisted logic, because the woman was a prostitute, it wasn't rape at all. Got
3: locked up for that one. Yeah, I'll beat her. But I ain't rape you. Well I'll rape you by the standard y'all call it rape, but we don't call it rape. In the streets like this. You paid her, so what is she complaining about?
2: After Vaughn was released from prison in Austin, he needed somewhere to stay.
3: Texas tried to offer me housing. I don't want your money. I don't need you to give me anything. I could go get what I want. It might not be the way y'all want me to go get it, but I could go get it. Mm -hmm. I think it's the way most people in society would want it. Right, but that's why we got, what, a trillion dollars in because everybody needs Like, dead. guys that live in projects that we know get public assistance. We call them bitches. You get no respect. We'll slap you, knock you out. Because you're amazed. We'd rather you rob somebody because kids need more help than adults. Once you become an adult, you shouldn't need any help.
2: Vaughn ended up going straight back to Gary and moving in with his stepbrother, Reginald Beard. Here's Reginald talking to the police shortly after Vaughn's arrest.
7: He didn't know what he was gonna do when he got out. Mm-hmm. And um, fuck it. I'm sensitive, you know what I'm saying? It's <clears throat> my brother and uh you know, I I said, Brother, you know, you need this place to crash, man, you can come here. Okay. And he when he got home, he explained to me like the details of uh what he went to jail for down there in Texas, uh, that he had to register at my house. I gave him the green light up you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. What did he do when he first came home? What was he doing? When he first came home, he, he really didn't go nowhere. Anymore. Okay. Mostly watching a lot of TV and eating a lot of food. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, okay. How's his behavior been since he's been out of jail? I mean, what do you- I was you, happy things? when he first came home. got he, yeah, he started getting depressed. He flip flops, man. Uh, Some days he come in the house and he'd stay on couch all day. He'd watch cartoons, like, fucking cartoons out there and dance movies and, and then two three in the morning i'm going for a walk see you you know what i'm saying and i'm going to see him for a couple of fucking days yeah. you said two three morning he will go for a walk
6: yeah is that all the time
7: he he walks a lot and he'll disappear for a couple of days but it's not always at that exact time you no. no. i really can't keep tabs on him like that but be, be foolish, you know. His walks, I would, um, you just take a walk, okay? Everyone know, get the fuck out of the house, you know. And now after all this, I'm like, well, you, know, you just walking a hell of a lot, you know. I'm talking about from city to like city, you know what I'm saying?
2: It's unclear exactly when Bond started killing after he returned to Indiana, but Bond's confirmed murders, the ones where he took police to the bodies. Those appear to have started in January 2014, with the disappearance of Tierra Beatty.
7: I contacted the police. Basically, they were telling us that she probably wanted to be bothered with nobody, but we knew that wasn't the case. We knew something was off with it. So I said, "Well, let me start investigating myself."
2: Next time on Algorithm.
3: I'm not normally a drug dealer because I'm not the kind of guy you can owe $10 to. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I want my $10. Because has been times of people's like, I know you got my 20 but I seen you at the casino the other day. Why didn't you bring my
7: $20? It was one girl, she was one of the very, very first person that ever ran into him. But she happened to get away from him. She talked to the detectives like, because of her line of work they didn't have time for her. To me, it's more because this is him. You know what I'm saying? This, he's going to be the person I've always known. China was going around telling people that she's in a abandoned building on the west side of town. It was like a scene from
2: a horror movie. This episode was written and produced by me, Ben Kiebrick. Algorithm is executive produced by Alex Williams, Donald Albright, and Matt Frederick. Production assistance and mixing by Eric Quintana. The music is by Makeup and Vanity Set and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Christina Dana, Miranda Hawkins, Jamie Albright, Rima Elkeale, Trevor Young, and Josh Thane for their help and notes. And if you're looking for another true crime show to listen to, you can now binge Camp Hell. It's a podcast investigating the rise of this weird wilderness therapy school based out of Georgia, which operated for over 30 years and ended in this huge scandal. It's a really good show and all 12 episodes are out now, so you can binge them. Search for Camp Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Zumo Play.